everybody. Welcome to Been Thinking About You, the show where I reconnect with those in my past who are doing cool things. Today we are joined by Gregory Murphy, a prolific photographer who's studying photojournalism and documentary photography at the London College of Communication at the University of Arts London. He's also the creator of the mini-documentary, The Windrush Lingers On. Gregory, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, of course. This is a prompt-to question since I didn't actually prepare this one, but I noticed on your Facebook thing you were a former photographer and editor at Humans of LHS. And I'm just wondering, because of the similarity of the title, was that influenced by Humans of New York in any way? Very much so. So Humans of New York is a blog and forum which was started by Brandon Stanton, who is a photographer who started documenting the lives of people in New York through the approach of having conversations with various people of all different backgrounds and extracting the best quotes or the most essential bits out of conversations he'd have with them. And he has continued on to publish numerous books and go to various nations around the world across different continents. And so Humans of LHS itself is more of a local scale where students at Lexington High School in Massachusetts photograph staff, alumni, and current students. And so I, for two years, during my junior year and my senior year in high school, I was a photographer and an editor for Humans of LHS. I actually did read the book, and it was basically a compilation of all the Humans of New York stuff. And one of the stories that they featured is the one which I noticed was on your WhatsApp information page, and it was, quote, for those who don't know, I was starting to wonder if there was any reason to go on, but then I had the most delicious pear. What was it about that quote that really stuck with you? I suppose it's the ability to look at life and realize how many aspects it's composed of and acknowledging that it's both the major occurrences but also the minor instances which constitute it, realizing that every day there is some highlight in spite of the downfalls or the uplifting qualities. And so I found that as a great analogy to make me realize as a documentary photographer that each day has something worth enjoying or worth documenting in a sense. So I liked its simplicity. Now let's talk a bit more about LHS. In three words, how would you describe your overall high school experience? Oh my, I would say very rickety, impactful, and relieving. Relieving in the sense that I'm out of it, <laughs> admittedly, <laughs> because it was definitely a process, without a doubt. And especially occurring over an adolescent period where one is figuring themselves out, but also figuring out how to connect with the world around them and the fact that it's a process which puts you through a lot of stress when even though you can know who you are, lots of people attempt to undermine who you are or really challenge you and make you endure a multitude of obstacles. So I'd say that I'm thankful for some of the teachers I've had, I'm thankful for a few of the friends I've made, but then again, I see it as a building block of life that I'm glad to have accomplished in order to move on to another phase of life. Was there anything in hindsight that you thought at the time was a big deal, but yet looking back, you're like, why did I stress out so much over that? That is nothing. 
I suppose it was just generally stressful because there was this major accumulation of aspects. I felt that within the system, there was a focus on too many subjects. And thus, with that in mind, it felt that you couldn't focus on what you were passionate about. And in hindsight, I suppose I was stressing too much over... Oh, my. There's a bit of a background noise for there's someone carrying books. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> Just books? But uh, I'm actually at one of the largest bookshops in London um, right now. But basically, in hindsight, I was stressing a bit too much over little aspects in a way, but then I think the system itself caused me to stress a lot. And so I kind of wish that the system provided me with more of a chance to focalize on what I was passionate about. But then it was sort of inevitable that it was not going to be the case, even though I knew what I wanted to focus on subject-wise. Again, I'm relieved to just see where I am right now. I guess that's a good thing about university too, because in university, you really get to pick what you study and what you focus on and where you put your energy towards in all aspects, be it academic or otherwise. Oh, most certainly. So a bit of a background to the viewers, like how exactly did Gregory and I meet? We met when I was a freshman, he was a senior, and we had improv class together. And we had, wasn't the usual teacher since she was on maternity leave, and she is wonderful, by the way. How do you remember improv class? I remember it actually being very helpful for the sake that it reflected human emotion. And it was great in terms of a bonding experience because it was actually one of the few subjects where I could really interact with each member of the class and be able to establish a good relationship with the teacher. And so I was really happy with Miss Israel because she was very vocal and she was very passionate. And while she may have gotten in trouble, I still think that she taught many lessons which were essential to everyday interactions. Absolutely. I mean, I even remember one time she mentioned how it's good to always like stretch out your back every night. And I have been doing that recently a lot more after a long while. I think also, too, just because of the nature of drama classes or other classes, again, as you mentioned, we really have to interact with each other because it's the nature of drama and whatnot, nature of humanity reflected as a result. Whereas in other classes, you only really interact with each other unless they're your friends and or the work requires you to do so. Is that what made you originally want to sign up for? Was there another reason? It was partially because of the social interaction aspect, but also the aspect of having a sense of relief from academia and being able to reach out into other fields of expertise because of the fact that the system in Massachusetts is very intuitive and it's very highly acclaimed in the US, but then at the same time, I think it's great to achieve a sort of balance. And so having both the academia and the artistry intact was a great move in senior year. Are there any notable differences between high school and university other than what I touched upon a bit earlier? Well, I'd say my university is not exactly the most conventional university, and it's also not reflective of the American university system either. Because when you apply to university to begin with in the United Kingdom, it's very simplified compared to the US, where you often have to do individual applications for each institution. Whereas in the UK, you would write a primary personal statement, which would be very short in length, 
it's around 650 words, I believe. Then you would list uh, lots of bureaucratic details about finances and identification and citizenship. And then you would submit a for my case, as I am studying, doing my BA in photojournalism and documentary photography at London College of Communication in the South London neighborhood of Elephant and Castle, I had to submit a portfolio composed of around 20 images and provide descriptions with each image and that was a virtual portfolio as I was living in Massachusetts at the time, which is 3,000 miles away from England. So that's one example with the application process. And then another example is definitely the liberty and the flexibility of time. I was initially struggling to adjust because I was drifting between two extremes. In the US, in Massachusetts especially, we often had three hours of homework a night and we often had barely any break time, and it was a very rigorous process. Whereas here, you'd have days of only two hours of class often, and you'd be given multiple months sometimes to work on specific projects. And so you are left with a lot of space to create a massive project or to do very little with a prompt given at hand. And so it's very interpretive, especially as it's an art school environment. But then my art school, being the College of Communication within the University of Arts London, is very career-oriented. So we do have lots of essays and theses, and we always have research backing even our visual work. Yeah, I'd say it's generally a lot more affordable than a lot of institutions in the US, even for an international non-EU student, as I am not a citizen of the European economic area, and so I am entitled to paying at least £17,000, which is still less than a lot of universities in the US, if I even convert it to US dollars. And so for me, Tuition plus rent combined, living in London, is still less expensive than tuition alone at many U.S. universities. Now let's talk a bit more about your photography. So what sparked your interest in photography in the first place? It was a very organic process, to phrase it pretentiously, <laughs> I guess. It was very much me exploring around and taking pictures with my phone initially, but then it morphed into my parents acknowledging how much I enjoyed it and gifting me with a camera, a DSLR camera. And so I would get passionate about that and I would end up like conducting projects and then I got into Humans of LHS and I ended up going into Boston every weekend in order to do some street photography and to capture the daily lives of people within the city. And so it really developed over time and became a quintessential aspect of my portfolio and my life. And so I acknowledged that I was also very much into documenting and very much into the journalistic side. And so as I wanted to specialize within that subject, England was very much a great possibility because of the fact that the UK education system is very, not exactly vocational, but still very career-oriented, and so you have to really engage with the subjects you have at hand and showcase some passion in it. 
Yeah, and I remember too, even back in improv class, I remember you showed me one of the photos you did. It was in Concord or Cambridge, but I cannot remember. But I do remember seeing some of those earlier photos. They were really good. Thank you. If my research is correct, have you been doing this kind of more advanced photography since 2013 or maybe longer or shorter? I'd say since, yeah, 2013 is definitely a realistic year to place it. I realized that photography was something to take more seriously in the first year of high school even because I noticed there was a photo club and I realized that I really liked photography and so it was great to have that as an initial outlet to collaborate with others who were interested in the field, whether it was more as a hobby or whether it was something to do on a daily basis. And thus, it really developed from there, as I mentioned again, the really gradual process which had gained momentum. So, yeah. The whole time when you were describing, I just appreciate the fact that when you're saying that your love of photography developed over time, that's a pun. Definitely, it is a pun, considering the fact that I also do analog. A lot of my photography is 35mm photography using SLR cameras, single lens reflex. And so I would use a Canon A1, or right now I'm using a Pentax K1000, And basically, it's a very nice process because of the fact that it allows you to become more intact with each image you take, as you are limited to 36 exposures or 24 exposures per roll of 35mm film. And I also develop it by hand and print it by hand. I was going through your Instagram doing research for this episode, and I noticed on some of your captions that not too many photographers use film anymore. So I'm curious, what is the appeal of using film to you? The appeal is that, again, it's the process of it. It's becoming more in touch with the photo, but also the aesthetic of it as well. The fact that when you manage to successfully execute photography on film, there is more of a capability of expanding the image to a larger proportion. So if you want to display a digital image on a wall, there's a lower chance that it will turn out well if it's blown to a large proportion than an analog image stemming from a negative. Thus, it is typically seen as not only more aesthetically pleasing, but actually sometimes more professional if one manages to execute analog properly. Take me through your mind when you go through a photo shoot, how you decide what you want to take a photo of, technical aspects when taking it, maybe some edits, how do you approach doing it? So very often when it comes to what I want to take a photo of, it's very, it can either be very dynamic or it can be something very planned, usually something I'm interested in. So as of recently, I've been very interested in photographing immigrant stories, photographing queer narratives, and also photographing daily aspects of life in a very like quotidian and mundane sense because of the fact that I live in inner London, I live in zone two. And so I am constantly surrounded by hectic energy and by people stemming from numerous continents and numerous different backgrounds. And with the process, um, it is usually just going out about and photographing, sometimes even asking people straight up if they want to be photographed and like complimenting them initially or like trying to create a dialogue, then asking if they want to be photographed. Like it depends on the willingness of the individual. And then editing wise, I do not edit much because I focus on documentary photography, which is more so about the raw nature of the image than the manipulation of the image. 
And I have nothing against the manipulation of the image, as sometimes the manipulation of the image is very much artistry in itself. It's just that I myself tend to focalize on realism. Which of your photos throughout the years you would say that you are the most proud of, and why? That goes to many extents. It's funny to describe it on a radio show, but I guess I'm very proud of this one photo I took really recently, where I was photographing a friend of mine. Her name is Maya, and she was featured in this documentary I filmed about her and how she was born and raised in Britain. But unable to gain citizenship until this year because of an act passed by Margaret Thatcher preventing children of Windrush immigrants from attaining citizenship. And I took this picture of her just without her glasses on, and she was in this sort of scholarly dress with little petals, and she was staring at the ceiling with bulging eyes. And I just loved how expressive it was. And I also took this image. This one was really recent at this one venue I go to all the time. It's a very queer venue. It's called Dalston Superstore, and it's in the London borough of Hackney. And I brought my analog camera with me, and I had black and white film, and I photographed this one duo. And it seemed that they were a couple, possibly on a first date, and about to kiss one another. And they both had this awkwardness in their expressions, and these men were like in the process of kissing, but kind of questioning it, and also surrounded by this crowd of people enjoying their night with drinks in their hand. But then you're also able to just focalize on the couple, and so I like that there was this foreground action, but also this background noise within the composition. Do you have any favorite photographers or any favorite photographs that aren't your own in general? Favorite photographs is a very loaded question, admittedly. But favorite photographers, most definitely. One of my favorite photographers is a Mexican analog photographer named Graciela Iturbide. She mainly photographed in the 70s and 80s, and basically all of her work is black and white. And one of her projects I enjoy the most is this project called Cuchitan, which follows a village in the Mexican state of Oaxaca. And this village is known as the Ciudad de las Mujeres, which means city of women. And you see the lives of women and non-binary people, and what they natively refer to as mujeres, which is seen as the third gender. And often they're assigned male at birth and. Present themselves in either androgynous or more feminine ways, and I think it's beautiful because it was photographed before the momentum of many LGBT rights in politics, and it features an indigenous tribal group in the Mexican state of Oaxaca, and it just feels so human. Another photographer I appreciate is this emerging Nigerian documentary photographer by the name of Yagazi Emezi. And she focuses mostly on everyday life in Nigeria and Liberia, and it's very much focused on the fashion trends, and the infrastructure, and the development of society. So, a very non-Western point of view, which I appreciate because it sort of defies the subliminal white savior complex. And then 
Lastly, to go on to more large-scale photographers, I like Mathieu Ballet. He is a National Geographic photographer who travels to various secluded tribal groups around the world and captures their daily lives. And he spends a lot of time with these groups, socializing with the populace and respecting their rituals. And so I like his approach to documenting. Going back earlier, you said that when asking you any favorite photographs in general is a loaded question. Could you tell me a bit out of curiosity why that is the case? It's because of the fact that every day, especially in the context of social media, we are saturated with so much beauty and so many aesthetics that it is hard to determine what is the most pivotal photograph or the most eye-catching photograph as we ourselves gain the sense of fatigue and it really escalates our standards of beauty. And so even photographers themselves, when it comes to judging photo competitions, they will go through tens of thousands of submissions and it's often difficult to boil down. And so within the world of photography, there is so much to disclose, so much to reveal and so much to commemorate that it's endless. And that's sort of beautiful in a way, also worrisome, but it shows how versatile humanity truly is. I remember a while ago, too, it was an Instagram post from you, and you were, and I'm really strongly paraphrasing here, so correct me so you get a bit more specific, but I remember you were praising National Geographic because they put more of a priority on, like, hiring female photographers, saying along those lines, and ensuring, like, better representation. Could you tell me why you feel that representation is important in this field? I wasn't necessarily praising National Geographic, to be honest, but I was saying to National Geographic that it was essential to hire more female photographers. And it is sort of counterproductive to praise an institution because of the fact that it provides this sense of complacency and there's always a way to go in any social movement. Thus, even when it comes to civil rights and the advancement towards rights for black people in the U.S., a lot of white Americans in higher positions of privilege evidently like to believe that the movement is over, but then there is still racial injustice occurring to this day through gerrymandering and many acts pass through laws and jurisdictions. And so representation is something which should always be strived for as the society is becoming increasingly aware of its diversity, whether it's in the US, whether it's in Northern Europe, or whether it's even in a metropolitan area outside of the Western Hemisphere. And thus, we need to acknowledge how many sources we gain our influence from and the fact that we are always exchanging ideas between various cultures, regardless of the source of origin. So now I actually want to talk a bit more about the documentary. I mentioned earlier the intro that you did from Maya. It was the Wind Rush Lingers On. It's a four-minute documentary upload his Instagram, and he filmed, directed it, edited it. And again, he already mentioned earlier about what it was about. So for viewers unfamiliar with it, could you talk about the term the Wind Rush Generation? What does that term refer to? 
The Windrush refers to one of the first major sailing ships which departed from Jamaica and came into the ports of the United Kingdom. And it refers to this fleet of migrants in specifically like around the 1960s especially, which came in and settled in the south of England in order to pursue a more financially stable life than what they would have pursued in Caribbean nations which were colonized by the British. And right now, there is a Windrush scandal going on, as in many people who migrated from the Caribbean to the UK are undergoing political issues where they aren't entitled to citizenship, they aren't entitled to the same rights as regular British residents, and thus they have to amend through court cases in order to receive passports and in order to be entitled to the same rights. And so how did you meet Maya? I met Maya through my own university, actually. There is a learning center situated in the neighborhood of Camberwell in South London. And we just randomly met and decided to converse and we somehow exchanged WhatsApp contacts and we became very close friends. So why did you decide to tell her story? What made you motivate to make the documentary? What made me motivate was partially the convenience, knowing her very well and knowing her openness, but also because of the fact that at the time of telling her story, I realized that it was a very discussed topic and so I decided that I would bring the topic to a more visual extent and bring it close to home for many people who inhabit Great Britain by showcasing familiar locales around London specifically, whether it's the view from Waterloo Bridge, whether it's the Shard, which happens to be the tallest building in the EU, or whether it's Brixton Village in southwest London, which happens to be situated in Brixton, which is where many of the Windrush migrants have resided. And I believed it was essential to have someone who grew up in Britain narrate this very much so, as it brings a sense of relatability and empathy, and it makes people question more why these acts of legislation have been passed, preventing people from becoming citizens. You mentioned earlier like how the Windrush issue is more relevant nowadays in Britain. Could you talk about how that is the case? Is there anything specific going on, or is it just more people like Maya who are coming out speaking their stories and fighting for greater recognition by the government? There have been many stories where individuals haven't been able to actually go back to their countries of birth. And it's very depressing because of the fact that some haven't gotten any national forms of ID or anything allowing them to travel outside of the United Kingdom. So Maya herself, she has yet to travel outside of the United Kingdom. And Britain itself is a small nation in comparison to some US states, for example. And so it really leaves her feeling confined to what exists. And so it is very essential to consider that this act has really torn families apart. Is there any specific reason why you want to tell Maya's story in a four-minute documentary? Is there any specific reason behind the format of the whole piece? 
The reason why it was in the four-minute documentary was more so related to a prompt I had in my bachelor's degree, where I had to create a documentary video between the length of three minutes and five minutes. And thus, I was limited for time constraints and could only implement about 30% of her narration. And it was not necessarily hard to decide which pieces I'd implement, but it was still a very crucial process because I wanted to be careful as to how the story was executed. You touched a bit earlier, but is there any specific takeaway you want to have viewers from the documentary? I simply want to spread a sense of awareness and for people to be able to connect and understand how identity is composed of so many layers and how certain circumstances can impact the way people perceive the world. And so I hope that people begin to become more aware of what's going on in their own country and become more aware as to what should be changed and so it is definitely an essential thing to acknowledge. All right, so now I want to talk a bit more about politics. I think there is a lot of interesting stuff here. I remember back again when you and I were peers at Improv. That was back in the year that Donald Trump won the 2016 election. And also recently, too, in the UK, you've also seen Boris Johnson be reelected as prime minister. So I'm curious, now that you've experienced two major elections in two different cultures, what similarities and differences have you noticed between the U.S. and U.K. political environments? Well, the election process of Boris Johnson wasn't exactly a direct election, but more so an internal election conducted within the Parliament of the United Kingdom. And so many people in the U.K. wouldn't have chosen to elect Boris Johnson, for example, but then because of the momentum gained by the Conservative Party of the United Kingdom, it has changed the political environment to an extent, but then not much change has occurred simultaneously. But in terms of the UK versus the US, politically speaking, still completely different realms. In many senses, the UK has influenced the US, considering that Britain colonized the US, but also considering the philosophical influence and with British politics, there is also this sense of detachment. As with the US, you elect representatives for districts within the state. And with the UK, you elect members of parliament for districts within the counties and districts within cities. And within the city of London alone, there are numerous members of parliament representing different boroughs. For example, I live in the London borough of Southwark. And so with the US and the UK, there is still a certain entitlement of freedom, which is not guaranteed by many third world societies. For example, there is still a lot of liberty, but I'd say that the UK provides more social infrastructure it's still more socialist as healthcare is guaranteed to the entirety of the populace through the national health services. And it still guarantees a slightly better sense of upward mobility where someone, if they work hard enough, can be more likely of achieving their financial dream than in the United States, where it's even more so about the class you're born into.
Often there's this political narrative in the U.S. that now, politically speaking, people are more divided than ever. Is there a similar level of political divisiveness in the U.K.? It is definitely divided. Even when you go between different boroughs of London, you feel the division. The borough of Kensington and Chelsea is very detached in a sense because many people actually are capable of owning automobiles. And you see that the population is very much composed of Middle Eastern elite and well-established affluent British people along with affluent French people. Whereas if you go to the deaths of Southwark or certain parts of Hackney, for example, you see that there's more of a large Nigerian community or a large Turkish community composed of working class individuals. And it is divided in the UK, but in a different nuance as the divides in the UK are a bit more cultural than regimented, as the US itself has more of a strict division, whereas the UK, I have a very London-centric point of view, but even then, in many British metropolitan areas, it's still slightly more integrated because there are a lot of council housing networks where the council housing estates are integrated amongst luxury properties. And so it also creates a different sense of gentrification. And so it's sort of complex and it requires lots of discussions. Nonetheless, I would say that the divide in the US is more finite. For those of you who may not know at home in the UK, I think, correct me if I'm fudge up with the details a little bit, but there is a tradition in which you have the actual professional political candidates, then you also have more gag candidates, which is like more people in costumes running just for a joke. And I didn't know this, so I remember being in civics class of watching the election and their count of the votes, and it was incredibly surreal for me to see Boris Johnson, professional politician, seriously stand next to a grown man in a cheap Elmo costume. And it's like Times Square kind of cheap, not just like a nice costume. So a question for you, if you had to create a character to run for prime minister, who would it be and what would their policies be? I think that, well, the concept of running for prime minister is very different than in the U.S. because of the fact that with the U.S. system, you could technically have no political background like Trump and run for president. But then in the U.K. system, in order to run for prime minister, you already have to be a part of the party you are running for with a pre-established career record. And so it is impossible to actually become the prime minister in the United Kingdom without having a previous layer of experience. But then visionarily speaking, I would like someone with a very international background to be prime minister to almost curse the Brits and put them into a more critical position where they question what it means to be British considering all but 22 nations on this earth have been colonized by Britain. And I would also like the Prime Minister to be very understanding of the issues confronted by people of all social and financial classes in order to have more of an empathetic approach to dealing with the class divide which exists and has existed in the United Kingdom. All right, so now I'm curious too, 
how did Elmo get up to be there? Did uh, did they start their own party and then because they're a gag character, they're just whatever? Or how did that happen then? I think that was probably a comedy skit more than anything else because Elmo wasn't actually a real candidate running for any position. I think it was probably just featured in a program. I myself am not familiar with Elmo's presence. <laughs> I'm admittedly laughing having grown up with Sesame Street, but yeah, no, it wouldn't be possible in the UK. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, because I did see that clip. It had like it was like a Lord Bin face. There was the guy in the Elmo costume. There were like three other people in costumes. Now I'm in confusion. Yeah, I'm in confusion as well. <laughs> Probably so some sort of event occurring outside of the Houses of Parliament in Westminster where there happen to be people dressed in Sesame Street outfits. I don't know then. I'd probably have to check on my civics teacher again for the details. So Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So in many of your photographs and short videos on Instagram, and again, as you mentioned throughout your photography questions earlier, another prominent subject of your work is queer culture, from drag queens performing in gay bars to friends voguing sessions, and even recently you're now doing a photography project on queer people of color. How would you describe your involvement in queer spaces during and after high school? In high school, it was very limited because of the fact that I find that in many aspects of queer culture, there is still a revolving around alcohol and substances at times. And so with the U.S. being a nation with very strict alcohol policies where the drinking age is 21, it creates this limitation because there are queer youth groups in the U.S., but even those are often situated in downtown areas of urban metropolitan areas, and thus it's difficult because of the fact that we ourselves lived in a town called Lexington, which was still situated almost half an hour from Boston, and it was very inconvenient. And so it was all much more limiting in the United States as there was only the Gender and Sexuality Alliance, which was once a week on Tuesdays. And in the UK, my involvement has been much grander. There are bars for not just gay men or for lesbians, but also dedicated to trans people and dedicated to various queer people congregating all together. And so it is more of an inclusive environment and it has been very enlightening in a sense because of the fact that I can drift between different facets within the cultural network and be able to see something more dedicated to trans and non-binary people but also be able to see something focused specifically on queer people of color. And my university has an LGBT society which is not really that great because of the fact that the members have become very niche and sort of exclusionary. So that's pushed me to actually be part of a student network of those who happen to be queer people of color throughout different universities across London. And how did you originally find out or get involved in those queer spaces? It was gradual. Many people I would know telling me about these spaces and these clubs or just events in general or just learning about it through social media, even googling what is happening in London, or like queer events in London, queer venues in London. So it's all a variety of sources and influences involved. 
And I'll admit that most of the events I attend now are in the eastern portion of the city. And it's essential to acknowledge this with London, because a lot of people like to always believe it's a north-slash-south divide because of the River Thames. But it's often also an east-slash-west divide because of the World War II bombings, which have created this economic disparity, which is becoming increasingly more muddled, but still apparent to this day. And so the west side has more lavish buildings, generally speaking, and more wealthy and affluent populace. And then the east side often has more simple architecture, which has been more recently built, and often has more of an alternative culture and more of a migrant-based setup, which is very alluring to me as someone who is half black and half white, having a Haitian mother and an Irish father. And yeah, it is very alluring to see like the variety that is encompassed in this grand metropolis. You said in the caption to a compilation of photos of queer performers, and you called it, my wig got snatched as, quote, an homage to all of the beautiful queer performers whom I've witnessed on my continuing journey into understanding queer culture as a gay human myself, end quote. Why do you feel that it's important to understand queer culture, and how has that helped you develop your personal identity? It's important to understand it because of the fact that it is still, like many identities and many human qualities, being queer, which I use as a very loose term to refer to anyone who isn't both cisgender and heterosexual, being queer is something which is still deemed as taboo, even among left-wing people, and is still seen as being outside the norm. And so that almost leads to an embracement because people embrace the idea that they are not quote-unquote normal or normative, so to say. And so I realize I myself have this layered identity being both aligned under the term person of color, but also being queer. And so I find it alluring to be able to show my own portrayal being within that population. Would you consider yourself a drag fan? I wouldn't necessarily say yes or no to that question. More so the fact that I just like to be supportive of different cultural movements. Because I myself do not actively engage in drag, like whether it's watching it or performing it but I respect the art form as a way of questioning gender expression and showing that one can go extravagant regardless of the sex they were assigned at birth. Yeah, totally. If you're ever in the mood to like, find a new performer, one who is actually a Manchester queen who I found out about recently, and I think she is incredible, she is drag excellence in my eyes, is Juno Birch. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I saw her from, like, a Vogue a special video thing. Her whole premise is kind of like a, an alien who crashed on Earth in the 60s and trying to blend in with humans. Her concept is awesome, so I'd highly recommend for anybody just to check it out. Or just check out Dragon in general, because it's a really awesome art form. Yeah, I myself, I know some professional drag queens, and I know people who are just starting to get into drag. And so it is something which serves as an outlet for many people to challenge their confidence, to challenge their own perception of beauty, 
and to simply perform and learn to interact with an audience. Yeah. Next question is, and this is a general one, but you can make it as specific as you like. What is next for Gregory Murphy? I suppose what is next is simply continuing with what I am doing to be active in whatever communities I'm involved in, whether it's within the voguing scene, as I have met lots of lovely people through there and have become more acquainted with lots of dance moves, or whether it's simply developing a better relationship or simply maintaining my relationship with those whom I know and love, like my family and two of my flatmates or simply close friends. So right now I am simply trying to savor in life day by day and enjoy what the city has to offer. But since I'm also a student and also trying to be budget oriented but sometimes failing in the process, I certainly need to search for a job and certainly need to enhance my portfolio. And so I'm basically like any human. There's always room for development there's always room for knowing more, and life itself is a momentous learning curve where one can develop their own sense of self. All right, Gregory, that is all the time we have for today. For those of you who are curious at home, who want to check out your photos or see the documentary The Wind Rush Lingers On, where can people find you? I suppose right now my portfolio is kind of limited, but I've just created a website, which is Gregory romamurphy.com Gregory being spelled G-R-E-G-O-R-Y Homa being spelled R-O-M-A-I-N and then Murphy being spelled M-U-R-P-H-Y so GregoryRomaMurphy.com and then my Instagram which I use most actively is Gregory underscore Murphy. So Gregory underscore Murphy. All right, guys, that wraps up all the time we have for today. You can check out Gregory's documentary, The Wind Rush Lingers On, on his Instagram that he just mentioned, and check out his website. He's creating awesome stuff. So go support him. This wraps up today's episode of Been Thinking About You. I am Ryan. Take care, everybody, and tune in next time.